If you'd like to spend some time with real people with a real heart for God, we welcome you to visit us at Harvest Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Our Sunday morning services are held at 1030, and our Family Night Fellowship takes place on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Come experience God's awesome, life-changing power as we worship in His presence, fellowship with one another, commit to discipleship, and share God's love through evangelism. For more information or directions, visit HarvestNova.com. That's HarvestNova.com. Matthew 21, beginning at verse number 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right, and, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The title of my Palm Sunday message today is The Coming of Our King. The Coming of Our King. You'll notice verse 5, quoting from Zechariah 9, says, Your King comes to you. And so... While the king came to Jerusalem that day, I believe he has also come to us. Amen? Now, you know the story. Jesus tells two of his disciples to bring him a donkey and her colt. By this point in Jesus' ministry, most of the disciples had learned to do as they were told. Most of the time, anyway. So the two men went and did as Jesus instructed them. The scripture says they brought the donkey and colt, and colt placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. Now, however trivial this errand may have seemed, it was full of biblical and theological significance. It demonstrated that Christ had come to be king. As Matthew explains, I want to reread verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Prior to this time, Jesus had been very guarded about uh, revealing who he was. Of course, his miracles told the story, but we see in some places, especially in Mark's gospel, what is known as the messianic secret, where Jesus uh, told those who were healed or otherwise uh, had, been, uh, had had an encounter with him, don't uh, tell anyone. The reason for this was that Jesus was fully in control of the timetable of when he would reveal himself as king. And at this time now, as, uh, the, the time has come for him to come in Jerus into Jerusalem and initiate the events uh, that would uh, culminate in his suffering and dying on the cross and resurrection. He is now uh, coming in and declaring himself. This is very important. This is the crux of this message. He is declaring himself to be king. He is declaring himself 
to be king. He came as the messianic king, the Messiah, the king of the Jews. But as I indicated a moment ago, he's also come to be our king. Amen? And so we may wonder, well, what does this event from 2,000 years ago, yeah, I, I understand about the crucifixion, I understand, of course, about the resurrection, but what does the triumphal entry have to do with us in 2023? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. And uh, in doing so, we're going to answer the question, what does the triumphal entry reveal about the kingship of Jesus? I want to submit to you there are three things today. First of all, the triumphal entry reveals that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful king. The people of Israel had always understood Zechariah's prophecy, quoted here by Matthew, uh, to refer to the Messiah, God's anointed king. Again, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus mounted this donkey, he was presenting himself as Israel's promised king. The Jews knew their scriptures, and many people in the crowd would have remembered the words of Zechariah and recognized what Jesus was doing. Some of them may have even remembered that when Solomon became Israel's king, he was presented on the donkey of his father David. We find that in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. One clue that the people of Jerusalem recognized this connection is that when they saw Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey, uh, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. In any case, by using that title, they were acclaiming Jesus to be their rightful king. They recognized, as it says, that he had come in the name of the Lord. Now, although it is often overlooked, there is an even older prophecy that explains why Jesus rode a donkey. Long before uh, uh, Zechariah's prophecy, Jacob pronounced this blessing on his son Judah. In Genesis 49, 10 and 11, he said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Isn't that interesting? Jacob's prophecy meant that Israel's true king would come from the tribe of Judah, as Jesus did, and that in some way he would be associated with the cult of a donkey. What is only hinted at in Genesis was made plain in the gospel. Jesus, the son of David from the tribe of Judah, rode into Jerusalem as Israel's rightful king. And that's why Jesus accepted the praises of the crowd, because this was his declaration as king. I came across this, uh, and uh, as a student of history, I've, I've known this, but I was reminded of this. Did you know that in the beginning days of our republic, some of the uh, colonists uh, and the citizens of our brand new nation wanted to make George Washington a king? Did you know that? Uh, but he refused wisely. <laughs> Thankfully, he refused. Because George Washington and many of the other colonists believed that there was only one king, and it wasn't King George III of England. 
On April 22, 1774, before the Revolutionary War, a report was sent to King George III of England from the colonial governor of Massachusetts, from Boston. And he said this to the king. He said, if you ask an American who is his master, he will tell you he has none, nor any governor, but Jesus Christ. And then in April 1775, when a British major called the colonialists uh, villains and told them, quote, lay down your arms in the name of George, the sovereign king of England, the immediate response was, we, we recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. This became the battle cry and motto of the Revolutionary War, no king but Jesus. Don't tell me our nation wasn't founded on Christian principles. No king but Jesus. That should be our motto today, amen? No king but Jesus. If Jesus is the king, then all his loyal subjects must recognize his kingship. The Jews did this by calling him the son of David and also by spreading their cloaks before him. And this was the ancient custom. People threw their cloaks down, uh, they threw their garments, their cloaks down to make a carpet for the royal procession. How do we recognize his sovereignty? By laying our hearts before him. By throwing down our wills in absolute surrender and asking Jesus to govern everything we think and say and do, then we can praise him as our rightful king. How about it this morning? Have you crowned him king of your heart? Does he have absolute rule in your heart and life? He came as the rightful king. He was declared as the king. You know, that's a battle within us, isn't it? Because we want to retain kingship in some areas of our life, don't we? We want to be the king. We want to set the agenda. We want to do. Don't we have an amazing capacity to find a way to rationalize and to justify doing exactly what we want to do? It's amazing. And it's an innate ability and it starts when we're very young. Right? Parents? <laughs> We have this ability to rationalize and justify doing what we want to do. But you know, all that changes when Jesus is recognized as king. He was recognized then as the rightful king. And he must be recognized today as the rightful king. When we go out into the world that doesn't know Jesus, our motto needs to be no king but Jesus. Not the king of government, not the king of popular opinion, not the king of self, but King Jesus. Amen? Amen? We must crown him, as the crowds did then, the rightful king. What's the second thing that uh, the triumphal entry reveals about the kingship of Jesus? It's, uh, this is so fascinating. He is the victorious king. He is the victorious king. When we look into the full text of this quoted scripture from Zechariah 9.9, there is a significant difficulty in the translation. The original Hebrew of Zechariah 9.9 in one part actually says he is righteous and saved. He is righteous and saved. This was the translation in the Geneva Bible of 1560. Now the Geneva Bible was the definitive English version before the King James Version. 
The, uh, the, the, king, the ancient Greek translations uh, changed this or rendered this as an active. He is righteous and saving. The King James Bible straddles the issue with its uh, awkward and ambiguous translation. He is righteous and having salvation. And the NIV reads that way as well if you look in Zechariah 9.9. But the Hebrew literally says he is righteous and saved. Now what does this mean? Does the rightful king come to save or to be saved? Is he coming to bring salvation or does he somehow need to be saved himself? According to the literal translation of Zechariah's prophecy, he is righteous and saved. But how can this be? The Messiah didn't come to be saved but to save. Uh, the, the reason for him coming is that people need a Savior, amen? What good would it do for God to send us a Savior who himself is in need of salvation? Well, to understand this prophecy, it helps to recognize that the coming king obviously does not need to be saved from his sins. Zechariah has already said he is righteous. And, and all his thoughts, we know Jesus lived a sinless life. He was perfect. He never thought an impure thought. He never said an impure word. He never did an impure action. So if Jesus obviously doesn't need to be saved from his sins, in what sense is the king saved? Uh, I believe the answer is that he was saved from death by the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. Although the Bible frequently uses the word save to refer to salvation from sin, it often uses it also in a more general sense of deliverance. For example, in Psalm 106, it says he saved them from the hand of the foe. In Psalm 20, verse 9, O Lord, save the king. In Psalm 72, 12 and 13, King Solomon promised that God will deliver the needy who cry out and save the needy from death. For Solomon, salvation meant deliverance from death. And so this is the kind of salvation Zechariah had in mind when he said the king is righteous and saved. He meant that God's rightful king would be delivered from death and would be vindicated. Probably the best translation is in the Revised English Bible, which says, see, your king is coming to you, his cause won, his victory gained. Once we understand what Zechariah meant when he promised the king would be, quote, saved, we can see why the Gospels leave out this part of the prophecy. Matthew simply says, Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew undoubtedly had the whole prophecy in mind, but he said nothing about the rightful king being victorious. Why is that? Well, Jesus did not win the final victory on Palm Sunday. We know he won it a week later. Amen? When he rose from the dead. And so Matthew included only part of the prophecy. The fact that God saved Jesus means that he can also, this is the best part, he can also save us. Amen? Now that Jesus himself has been delivered from death, he has the power to deliver us from death. The one who is righteous and saved is able to be our Savior. Hallelujah. I heard about a, a, a massive oak tree in a park that had a vine grow up next to it. And at first the vine growing was no big deal, but over time that vine grew and grew and wrapped itself 
around that oak tree till that part of the oak tree couldn't even be seen. It seemed as if it was a massive bird's nest around it. And what the park caretakers determined was that that vine was actually choking the life out of that mighty oak tree. As surprising as that may sound, that vine was choking the life out of it. And so what the park attendants did was they came at the base of that vine and they made a cut in the root of that vine. That's all they did. And they said that would solve the problem. Now, the massive tendrils of that vine still clung to that oak tree. But you know what happened? That vine began to die because it was cut at the root. And over time, uh, those, uh, those tendrils, those uh, extensions of that vine began to lose their grip on that oak tree and began to fall off. And that's what happens with you and me. When Jesus came and died on the cross and rose from the dead, he cut the power of that vine of sin that had its tendrils around our lives. And yes, it still clings to us sometimes, and it's still there, but that that vine is dying, hallelujah. The power of sin is broken, hallelujah. The king who is righteous and saved has come to save us, to deliver us from the power and the penalty of our sin, hallelujah. Glory to God. The way we enter into this victory is to call on Jesus for salvation, which is what the crowds did when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Even though they did not yet understand his crucifixion or his resurrection, they asked their rightful king to save them. They welcomed him as their victorious savior, taking those palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. Do me a favor, take your palm branches right now, just wave them right now. And Can we give a great Hosanna to the Lord? Hosanna! Come on, lift your voices. Hosanna! Glory to God! Hosanna! Hallelujah! Palm branches were an ancient symbol of victory. During the Maccabean revolt, the Jews minted coins with the image of a palm on them, emblematic of victory. The word Hosanna originally was not so much a word of praise as it is a prayer. Originally it comes from Psalm 118 where it is a cry for help. Oh Lord, save us. Therefore, by waving the palm, palm branches and shouting Hosanna to the son of David, the people were crying out for salvation from their victorious king. They hardly understood what they were saying. It's true. Many of them were looking for some kind of political deliverance. But that's not the kind of deliverance Jesus came to bring. The salvation he offers is deliverance from sin, from death, and the eternal wrath of God. Therefore, to ask for his salvation is to confess that you are a guilty sinner who deserves to be condemned for your sins. Hosanna, yes, is partly a cry of victory. It recognizes that Jesus has the power to save, but it's also a cry of needy desperation, the prayer of a sinner who needs a Savior. Save me, Jesus. Hosanna, the Son of David. Hallelujah. He's a victorious king. He's conquered sin, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. Have you asked the victorious king to save you? Have you asked him to come and do what you can't do for yourself? 
the victorious king, saved, delivered from death, is the one who delivers us from death. Amen? The death of a, a sinful eternity separated from God. He's a victorious king who saves. What's the third thing the triumphal entry tells us about the kingship of Jesus? It's that he is the gentle king. He is the gentle king. In ancient times, when a king rode into a city, it was usually with a show of power and wealth. And this might be how some might have expected Jesus to enter Jerusalem. But here's the surprising thing. This rightful king, this victorious king, is also a gentle king. He comes to greet his subjects not with pomp and circumstance, but with humility and weakness. And again, Zechariah prophesied this. It's one of the royal attributes that he mentions in his prophecy. See, your king comes to you, again, Zechariah 9.9, your king comes to you gentle. The king's gentleness is symbolized here by his mode of transportation. At the least, you would expect this conquering, victorious king to ride in on a horse. A horse was a, uh, a, a, a mode of transportation for war, for battle, for conquest. But he came riding a donkey, and a borrowed donkey at that. Another indication of his gentleness is the relationship he has with his subjects. Zechariah's prophecy said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. The word daughter is a reminder that God regards his people as his own children. The Old Testament often uses this kind of relational language. In Exodus 4.22, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Isaiah 62.11, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your Savior comes. This king comes to us with gentleness, seeing us as his children. Isn't that awesome? We're children of the king. We're children of the king. Hallelujah. Amen. And this king's gentleness is not a sign of weakness. The preceding verses in Zechariah's prophecy describe how God will destroy Israel's ancient enemies like the Syrians and the Philistines. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So here we have an extraordinary combination of mighty power, omnipotence, and gentleness. Probably the best word used to describe it is meekness, which means power under control. When I was, a, when I was a, a kid, I remember there used to be a gospel song. It's, it said, he could have called, meaning Christ on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels, some of you remember that, to destroy the world and set him free. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Why? Because he had power under control. He's a gentle king. When John Newton the author of our great hymn, Amazing Grace, when he preached on Zechariah 9 back in the 17th century, he explained how wonderful it is to serve Jesus Christ, the gentle king. Listen to what he said. He said, happy are these his subjects who dwell under his shadow. He rules them not with the rod of iron by which he bruises and breaks the power of his enemies, but with the golden scepter of love. He reigns by his own right and by their full and free consent in their hearts. 
He reigns upon a throne of grace to which they have access at all times. And from whence they receive an answer to their prayers, mercy and peace, the pardon of all their sins, grace to help in every time of need, and a renewed supply answerable to all their wants, cares, services, and conflicts. We serve a benevolent king. We serve a gentle king. We serve a loving king who regards us as his children. Isn't that awesome? And if we're saved by a gentle king, then we should serve him with gentleness. You know that gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Our lives should be living demonstrations of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Sad to say... Too many who wear the name of Christ don't live lives that are gentle. You know what I'm talking about? One of the worst blights on the name of Christ is the harshness of people who call themselves Christians. Yes, we must stand up for righteousness, and I, listen, I get it. We live in an evil age, and we can't compromise the truth of God's word. We can't compromise one bit the biblical standard, but we need to do so in love. Amen? We need to do so in gentleness. We need to take a cue from our king, our gentle king. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The question I have for all of us is, and believe me, it's coming right back at me as well. Have you allowed the gentleness of this king to be reflected in your life? When the world comes in contact with you, do they experience the gentleness of Jesus, the love of Jesus? That's the kind of king he is. In conclusion this morning, you know, no wonder the crowds gave Jesus such a royal welcome. He was coming with all gentleness to be their rightful, victorious king. And, you know, I know we've seen it dramatized in in movies, but... Boy, it would have been awesome to have been there, wouldn't it? Must have been an amazing sight, not to mention an awesome sound. I imagine it was, it was pretty loud that day, don't you? Uh, and uh, Jesus approached Jerusalem at the start of the Passover feast. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims were crowding into Jerusalem. As he came to Bethpage and mounted his donkey, he would have been surrounded uh, by people going up to Jerusalem. When he reached the top of the Mount of Olives and looked over the city of Jerusalem, he would have seen crowds streaming out of the city gates. And as word spread that the king was coming and people gathered close to him, uh, I believe there were people in front of him, on the sides of him, behind him, crowding all around him. Jesus' reputation had preceded him. And he was coming and declaring himself as king. Pastor Tim, what's your point? This was a big deal. This was monumental. This was significant. The king was coming. The king was coming. And what do I say to you in 2023? Our king has come. Our king is coming. Our king has come. He's come to us. And one day he's going to come again. Amen? Amen. 
And he's not going to be riding a donkey. The scripture says he's going to be coming on a white horse. And his name will be faithful and true. Hallelujah. And his kingship will be displayed to the entire world. Hallelujah. And he will rule and reign forever and ever and ever as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He received the welcome he deserved then. We need to give him the welcome he deserves today. Listen, sometimes we think of praise and worship. I, I, I remember some, when I was little, sometimes people refer to that as the preliminaries. You know? And, well, it's okay if we're 15 minutes to, late to church. They're just going to sing a few songs. Well, we get there in time for the message. Now, as much as that appeals to my ego as the preacher, <laughs> worship is not preliminary. Worship is a main event. Amen? Because what, what happens is we lose ourselves. We lose our sense of, of you know, uh, what's important to us and what's on our agenda and what makes us anxious and what we're worried about and our to-do list and all the things that invade our minds. We say, Jesus, I just want to take some time. I want to lose myself in you. The king is in our midst. The king is here. I want to celebrate the king. I want to celebrate the glorious uh, awesomeness of your majesty the king is here our king has come to us our rightful king our victorious king who saves and our gentle king and we need to welcome him today amen we need to worship the lord we need to celebrate his goodness